0: Welcome to The Great Unlearn. Join me, your host, Cal, as we dive deep into understanding and unlearning the programming within us. Let's uncover your inner truth for a life with newfound purpose and freedom. Get ready to question it all in The Great
1: Unlearn. What we posit is that the biggest problem humanity is facing right now and has ever faced is trauma. The lingering response, right the living memory, the reflexes that get in the way of us living connected in our world. It leads to every other problem that we experience as a species, everyone. Even if you haven't had something that's objectively really bad happen to you, we all Have uh, imprints of trauma. So, how do we stop trauma before it ever happens? We can go treat the symptoms. Most of the things that we're doing to help humanity are treating the symptoms. But again, that's not preventing it. My greatest life's work being in that question how do we stop this from ever happening? Well, that seems like a bold undertaking. Holy shit. The only answer I see is our process of domestication, because the process of domestication is embedded in every culture on our planet. It's embedded in every religion. It's embedded in our stories. It's embedded in everything. So how do we stop the thing from happening? We have to recreate who we are. And we're trained from a really young age to compartmentalize our experiences, especially our feelings. The pain is inevitable. What do we do with it? How do we get through it? The lingering of that pain, the living memory of that's not inevitable. How we condition ourselves and domesticate ourselves turns it into an inevitability. We have the word attachment holding on to the past, the fear of the future or the, the, the inability to live in this present moment, right? That is discussed in so many different cultures. We have lots of different techniques and strategies to shake that off. Beginning to do that is a journey towards freedom, This movement towards that freedom is really just a removing the barriers, the obstructions, We don't need to add anything else to life. We're conditioned to do so. But really experiencing aliveness is about removing the obstructions to this present moment. Again, unlearning the industrialized, capitalistic concept of the world, which is add more in. We've got to let that go, take that away and be patient with the process of changing. Well, as so many of these you know,
0: uh, podcast start, uh, I get to introduce an amazing brother from Austin who's doing incredible work. And so I'm so thrilled that we came on, we're coming on today because uh, it's been a long time coming for me. I've been wanting to reach out, but you know, I've known a little bit about your work. And when we were together a little over a week ago,
2: mm-hmm.
0: uh, it just seemed right. Like, Hey, I wanted to get together, but like, let's just do this on a podcast and like really drop in. So, um, I'm honored and proud to introduce Will Reason to the Great Unlearned podcast and, um, really looking forward to getting into the work you're doing. And, uh, as important, if not more important is how you got to the work. And I think that's so important for people to understand that there's, things that happen in our life, I like think you and I would both agree they happen for us, mm-hmm. um, yeah. that, that allow us to find our true path. And um, I think you're just a tremendous example of, of what that can mean mm-hmm. if you can get outside the story uh, and really, really pay attention to yeah, the work you're meant to do. So thanks for coming on today, brother. Thanks, Cal. Uh, it has been a long time coming.
1: We met here.
0: It's probably a year ago somewhere. A little bit more. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's right. It was the, the end of uh, of 2020. 20? Yeah. We first started working out. Started out here and it was in November. November, yeah. 2020. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, that was our first introduction. And, and we didn't spend a lot of one-on-one time together, mm-hmm. but we'd get little... Little Pockets, kind, yeah, yeah. Here and there at the workout, after the workout, before the workout, and I just mm-hmm. always, I mean, listen. There was surrounded by a lot of you know great men who were there to to be a part of. Yes, we're working out together, but there was something else going on. But you, mm-hmm. you your, uh, your energetic stood out as as different than most. Just really sweet tempered, but not in a um, oh, he's just a really nice guy. I don't know how to describe it, but. Mm -hmm. There's a warmth about you and um, almost there's like a paternal fatherly, just like everything's good. Mm -hmm. Everything's good. And I've noticed um, in particular, just you, you're really good at listening and paying attention and not injecting your own stuff into a conversation. You, you allow um, whoever you're holding that conversation with to have their own experience. and not show them how smart you are. Mm. Right. Cause that's, I think that's a, at least in my experience, that's, that's, Mm -hmm. that's how I've, um, how I've recognized you showing up. And I think that's so important. And it's great for me to, to be around that, to Mm -hmm. see how powerful
1: that is. Mm -hmm. I have a mentor I've been working with for, it's just coming up on four years now. Um, and when I met him, I'd say that I injected more of that, the, coming from a place of um, wanting recognition, praise uh, from the world. Um, And something he encouraged me on is to be, to bring more awareness to that pattern. Um, Because it doesn't matter how intelligent we might be leading with that. Can get in the way of connection.
3: Yeah. Yeah. And so what was that process
0: like for you? And maybe we could back up a little bit and say, what have you found in recognizing that pattern and having that awareness where that comes from? Because I think on some level we, we all experience that and, um, Certainly, you know, the podcast is a, a great forum for people to try to show how smart they are, especially, mm-hmm. you know, I've recognized when I listen to podcasts and the host is, is trying to, um, you know, has on an expert or someone and they want to show like, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. And it's, <laughs> yep. you know, and, I, and I'm sure I've done that in the past and, you know, what I've really tried to do is let this be about, about you Mm-hmm. Right. And then maybe weaving in my own experience. So it gives context
2: yeah.
0: for my listeners who are maybe curious about what's going on with me and how, how it plays in. But I've really tried to uh, I've, I've tried to pay attention to when there's that urge to be like, oh, I, I know this and I want to show everybody that I know what Will's talking about right mm-hmm. now.
1: Well, you know, I, I went on my own little journey of exploring where did that come from, which is, a, I think I hear in the question that you're asking, what, what led to that? And I think it was a, a desire or a sense of wanting to belong, wanting to get the feedback from the world that, that I mattered. And one of the strategies that I developed through life was to measure whether I belonged based on the person's response to me. And I think we, in, in many ways, our culture conditions
3: us to notice that, to look for that.
1: Oh, did the expression on the person's face tell me that I'm accepted, that I'm belonged? Mm-hmm. Did their body language give me that implicit recognition? Right? And if we don't get that as children, then we're going to be seeking it just about anywhere until we unravel that Mm -hmm. so we discover that's about inside Mm -hmm. and so as I began exploring these things what I discovered was I didn't need anything from the world I needed something for myself and I didn't have the model at a certain point in my life to cultivate that within myself so I couldn't just get it from myself and right? so then it was seeking out the right conditions to have that reflected back to me enough that, oh, oh, I, I do have that. And I don't need it from the world so much anymore. But it's this process of awareness building. Oh, there's that thing. Oh, there's that thing. Oh, there I am again. Oh, doing that thing again.
0: Yeah, but then when we don't, I think what you're saying is when we don't have the tools, we don't really know what to do with that, except that the important part is A, having the awareness because if mm-hmm. we don't have that, we're not changing anything. Right. right. Yeah. So what, what are those, like the cultivation of those tools? Like what is, what does that look like for someone who's mm. just recognized they're They're listening to this conversation right now. And they're like, oh, I, I do that.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Now what? Well, when do I do that?
1: All right. So before we can stimulate anything to change, we've got to be aware that it's there. Right? So the awareness building, when I began, it was I was on a fact-finding mission or a hunt of sorts. How many times does this happen? What are the circumstances in which they happen? Right? I was waking up. I was waking up from a dream almost. And the dream had been my life. And it's progressive. And it's compounding across time. So where do we begin? We begin exactly where we are. And we notice, is it happening right now?
3: Oh, it just happened.
1: Hmm. Okay. Don't do anything. Don't try to change it. Just keep noticing it when it happens. And at some point, the noticing turns into an insight. I remember where this is, where this came from. Oh yeah. There's that time when, and then where I'm lost in a memory. It's just like a flood of Images and sensations and emotions, they start to bubble up inside of me and I'm daydreaming or I'm remembering times when
3: these things happened. Now I'm connecting to the
1: cause, the cause that's living inside of me currently. Right? We think it comes from the past, but it doesn't. It comes from right now inside of ourselves. Oh, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. hmm we associate it with the past. Yes. Because it's a memory. The memory is alive in us. and We can't differentiate between the memory alive in us right now and this present moment. Because they're the same inside of us.
0: This is going to be a... Perfect segue into the work too, which is so, this is so good. But it's so funny as you're saying that, and I was doing a lot of "Mm," (laughs) mmm as you were talking, because I I was recognizing just recently over the weekend, I was like, oh, I, one of the things I um, pay attention to or notice is when I am, kind of sharing something that I feel like is, you know, of importance. Mm -hmm. I'm scanning to see if there's head, head nodding Mm. agreement. Yeah, And I noticed it while it was happening this weekend and I know it's not the only time. So it's very interesting. I love that we're having this conversation. It's very, very apropos for,
3: you know, some of where I'm at. This. Yeah. Well, and
1: so there's the noticing and then there's a layer that often lives on top of the noticing of the pattern of behavior, which is the meaning that we make about it. And that meaning comes from all of the cumulative impact of our living, right? The influence of culture, the influence of family, the influence of friends, the influence of of where we are in the world, whether what kind of careers we've had, you know, all these other different factors. So now those layers of meaning just kind of pop up. It's like, oh, this is wrong. Mm. Right, now, now I'm making a judgment about my behavior, <laughs> which leads to shame, which leads to an avoidance of noticing the experience. Ooh, because shame is uncomfortable, right? It's, ugh. oh no, I don't want to feel that move away from that, right? So now what happens is I close myself off from remembering so it lives on inside, but triggers a response that I just, it's more like a reflex now. I reflexively behave this way. The thought pops up, I shut it down. So now I'm creating this little, this little barrier inside of myself where I can't feel myself. And we're trained from a really young age to compartmentalize our experiences, especially our feelings, our, our, our sensations, our body signals, our emotions, all of it. So now here we are in this little dance with ourselves that we're
3: mostly unaware of. Wow. <laughs> that was, um, yeah, thanks for that explanation because that kind of path I
0: get that. I get all, I get all the, I'll just speak for myself the way when that comes up, the judgment of why are you looking for affirmation? Mm -hmm. Remember you're, you don't care what anybody thinks. Mm. Uh, even though I know I do, uh, it's in a, I'm in a better relationship to that. Um, maybe than I was in the past, but that's and then it's just shut down the next mm-hmm. time and, and because
1: there is pain involved with that right. shame. Right. Well, and, and I don't care what other people think means I don't get to feel what it feels like
3: to care that I'm not getting my needs met. Right? Mm. Some sort of relational
1: need. I have to be okay alone, which has an origin point. I had to be okay alone because I didn't get the love when I cried out to mom or to dad, when I needed food, when I needed to be held, when I needed to be nurtured, right? And we all have these patterns because all of us need other to survive. And so then that turns into these other things. But the thoughts are just an emergent property of our state or the memory that lives on as our, as our current state. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And, and, and I think, you know, maybe,
0: maybe bridging that to the work that you do is in trauma and somatics Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, I love the, for me, it was the, the recontextualizing the memory there's a memory of it, but it's actually, it's an active thing mm-hmm. living inside you in, mm-hmm. you know, I think in my experience with trauma work um, and I'm excited to talk to you about TRE because I've done a, a, a bunch of that and mm-hmm. something I just recently came through, which was a little bit of TRE, which is trauma releasing exercises uh, for those who don't know with um, someone who does energy work and mm-hmm. can really kind of move that. And and I just noticed my physical body where there was literal armoring Mm. and
3: uh, it's, it's different now. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So how does it like, so there are memories, a sure there are memories, but maybe
0: um, how are these memories stored? Like Mm. physically, which I think is a, is a, is a, foreign concept to a lot of
3: people.
1: Yeah. I think it is. Um, To explain that, I think where I'll begin is with an analogy. Um, Here in your office, there's a tree. It's in a small pot. This tree in this pot is only going to get so big because of the environment that it's growing in. Put it in a smaller pot, the tree will probably get a little smaller it in a bigger pot, it'll keep growing. But if we take that tree and we put it outside, it'll grow exponentially. It'll be huge. It's constantly in response to the environment, right? So we're no different than that tree in that we grow in relationship to the stimulus or the input from our environment. Our body adapts to information from its environment progressively across time. When we have shocking or overwhelming experiences, that imprints a memory in our body. But it's not memory in a sense where I can recall when something happened, usually. That's explicit memory. It's implicit memory, which is a reflex. Um, It's maybe a muscle memory, maybe a breathing memory, maybe some sort of other way that the body stores that but it's useful information to the body to move away from danger and towards safety. And so progressively across our life, our, our system is continuously adapting to the information that it's receiving, the sensory input from its environment. This is intelligent for the organism survival. So how does that show up in the body? It's unique to the individual, it's unique to the circumstance, and it has to do with how that person's body has adapted to survive across their lifespan. But it might look like muscle tension or constriction patterns. It might look like racing thoughts. It might look like difficulty slowing down. It might look like working a lot. It could look like any number of different things. I mean, we have the, the DSM, the Diagnostic Manual, you know, for all of the different categories of the expression of disorganization in our systems, right? We call them psychological conditions, for instance, right? All of those are are words that categorize a constellation of symptoms in the body, right? And most of them psychological. That's an expression of something that's happening in the body, right? There's no difference between the mind and the physical form. It's just an expression of it. And so what we see is across time adaptations that turn into these different expressions. So how is it stored in the body? That, that might be one of the ways the symptoms show up, but how we get there, I think is an even
3: more important point, which is, so we have trauma,
1: the living memory of experience that was overwhelming. And then Why do we have trauma? The only place this shows up is in the domesticated world. Animals don't exhibit this out in the wild. Humans are the only creature that has this phenomenon that happens. Aside from domesticated animals, you see it in domesticated animals. We've taught them our way. Oh. We've taught them our way of inhibiting our natural responses. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, so we're passing our sickness onto them. Yeah. And our sickness is a lack of living in the present moment, of trusting the inherent capacity of our organism to know what to do, when to do it. And this doesn't mean haphazardly emoting all over the place or moving from all of our primal instincts. It means discernment about these things. And one of the beautiful parts of our development as an organism is that we do have the prefrontal cortex, which helps us to regulate our emotional responses to situations. And the way that we domesticate ourselves teaches us to inhibit our responses to intense experiences, which then when we do that, it lives on. And it turns into these reflexes, which is suppressed, stored energy in our body. So let's say I get hit by a car. Peter Levine uses a really great analogy in his book, In an Unspoken Voice, where he was walking across a street and he was hit by a car. Now, he was unable to protect himself from that. So he couldn't put his hand up. He couldn't move his body to protect himself from the threat. And he describes going through this sequence of allowing his body to to move in the way that he needed to move, to shake the way he needed to shake, to discharge that stored energy or the energy that was built up to protect him and keep him alive. He was able to do that because he had this um, person there. It was a pediatric physician, I think. That person coaxing him, gently being with him, showing him the nurturing care that he needed in that vulnerable state, made it possible for him to process real-time the experience. That meant that he wasn't terrified every time he walked across the street. That meant that his body didn't carry that forward in the same way. And what oftentimes happens is we are not collectively educated on how to support ourselves through our experiences in the world. Pain's inevitable in life. And the Buddhists would say, suffering is inevitable. Um, I translate that to pain because I think suffering is more subjective. Um, the pain is inevitable. What do we do with it? How do we get through it? The lingering of that pain, the living memory of that's not inevitable. How we condition ourselves and domesticate ourselves lives to, like, turns it into an inevitability. So, a long, circular, answer
3: to your, to your question about that. Yeah. And I, I,
0: you know, a few things came up for me for one, you know, just in a, a definition of trauma, um, I've heard it referred to, um, I forget by who, but it's, it's not, uh, kind of the magnitude of the experience, but it's how alone you felt in that whatever it was, right? And a lot of times we think of the, the the capital T traumas um are the only ones that have a real impact. But mm. um, you know, I think you can certainly speak to this with all all your, you know, work in this area. But I think it's important for people to understand that even if you haven't had something that's objectively really bad happen to you, that that we all have uh, imprints of trauma.
1: It's something that Ariana and I in the training program that we run, really reinforce 100% of us have some sort of trauma imprint. But trauma is the living memory of an experience that was overwhelming. It's too much for our system to process. It's not about it being psychologically too much for us. Um, although that can be a way that it, that it happens. But the thoughts that I think are just an expression of the state of my body They're an emergent property. They're the the last thing that happens. Everything else is happening beforehand. So trauma is the way that it's described clinically, the lingering psychosomatic response to events that were too much, too fast for the system to process. Or in the example of neglect, too little of our needs being met for too long. So when those particular things happen, the organism adapts to those situations in a really brilliant way. And that brilliance turns into these living memories. So I have reflexes to, to situations that trigger the memory, the living memory. And my body can't, dis- can't create distinction between the living memory and this moment. All right? So
3: overwhelm for the system, not for the mind and then there's
0: there's also the the idea I'd love to hear your thoughts on this that you know we have this when when something is coming into our field that is overwhelming in that moment, we have a couple of responses we can fight mm-hmm. or we can flee, right fight or flight, you've all have heard that um and when we don't have the opportunity to do either and we freeze. That's where, in in your example with Peter Levine, being able to shake it off, and, and you know that was yeah. his way to, you know, one of the ways he moved through that trauma. But if we're stuck there, then there's an opportunity for the trauma to lodge, like physically, in our system. Is that true, or what yeah. are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, so we we actually have four, uh, and I think they're are even more that that we're now defining ways that we that we respond to stress. But our first line defense is to fawn fawn is social mimicry. So it's so intelligent that you won't even be able to tell that the way that I'm behaving is incongruent with what I want because I'm doing it to pacify the situation so that we don't fall out of social harmony. So the fawn response is the first line of defense. It's the first thing that I can do to prevent a threat, right? So if I'm interpreting through my sensory signaling channels that there's a possibility that something between you and I might lead to conflict. Conflict is bad. It's dangerous. Maybe in my past, I had conflict that led to physical violence. So what I'm going to first do is pacify you. I'm going to agree with you. I'm going to try to soften the situation. Right. If that doesn't work, I might try to get away. I might try to fight. It depends on what my dominant response is. Right? So then we have the activation of the sympathetic nervous system with that. But the first line of defense is ventral vagal. So Stephen Porges has done enormous research, incredible research around the way that the function of our nervous system impacts all of these, these different things. Right? So we have our social system because we're social creatures, we need each other. And that is that social connection piece. So I'm going to do my best to stay socially connected because social connection equals survival. But if I can't stay socially connected and the threat's too much, then I'm going to reach for my fight response or my flee response. Now, if I can't get out of that scenario, maybe because of social conditioning or whatever it might be, or because it's just not possible, then I might begin to shut down or leave my body psychologically. Right? So that's dissociation.
3: Now, if that doesn't work,
1: I might become frozen or immobilized, right? The immobilization response is a full shutdown of my ability to feel. So it's a turning off of the sensations so that I don't have to experience my death. It's a last resort. So, and if that doesn't work, well, I think that's it. So when one of those responses is thwarted right so when when i can't fight and then i get kicked into a a, into a frozen state where i'm immobilized and i shut down or i pass out because it's too overwhelming the memory of whatever is incomplete lives on in my body and this is where we see there's a popular video where peter levine talks about this with an impala it's being chased by a cheetah the cheetah catches the impala Right before the the cheetah pounces, the impala collapses with the cheetah. So the impala's immobilized itself, so it doesn't have to experience it. And it lays there in a daze. There's a dumping of dopamine and uh, serotonin and all sorts of other chemicals that help, in a way, paralyze the impala so it's not experiencing its own death. So it's not feeling the cheetah chewing on it. Well, let's say the cheetah gets bored or it just suddenly decides it's not ready to eat the impala. The impala is immobilized. It seems like it's dead. It has not experienced the pain of the bite because it's basically high from its own chemicals. The cheetah gets up and walks away. After a few moments, the impala is going to come back to its awareness of itself. It's going to shake. It's going to take a few really, really deep breaths, and the system is going to begin to reorganize itself. Its legs may kick a bit. Now it's discharging that sympathetic energy from when it was running. And it's going to jump up, it's going to take off running, and that's it. There's no lingering of that. The next time there's a cheetah, the Impala is going to run the way that any Impala would run. It's not inhibiting any of that. When a human encounters an experience that's shocking like that, we will suppress our responses. Paramedics will give people paralytics or sedatives they'll strap them down and they'll prevent them from shaking. And so the, the brilliance in the TRE approach is a byproduct of the journey towards healing. Right? One of the byproducts is that sometimes we get a discharge in the system. The discharge might look like shaking or crying. And there are a lot of modalities that are built around stimulating that one particular part of the journey. But um, what we found is that that's not the answer it's just sometimes a byproduct of the journey towards integrating that experience. So sometimes it happens and it can be really helpful. It can be really relieving to feel that and to have that, to just kind of go through a cycle of discharge. But catharsis is not the answer. It's just sometimes a stop on the pathway. Mm. So what would be, what would follow generally everyone's
0: Mm -hmm. different and all, all, you know, kind of experiences are, but like what, now you get this physical discharge, the shaking, mm-hmm. tremor mechanism, and then
1: what's the path generally look like? Well, I back up one step and say, what tells us that we need to stimulate a tremor? Um, right? So if, if, we're tr- if we're stimulating a tremor response in the body, why? Why are we doing that? What, what in that particular body tells us that the body needs to tremor. Right? So we, the assumption is that the, that all bodies need to tremor because all bodies need to shake it off because animals shake it off. But that's an assumption that that particular technique's moving from. What I say is, well, okay, why does this particular person need to shake right now? What tells us that? Is there some, is it happening organically or are we forcing it to happen? Mm -hmm. Because it feels good afterwards. Right, so sometimes it happens in my work when I'm working with people. A tremor might begin to happen. If it happens on its own, we might encourage it. Yeah, let's let's follow that. Um, and at this point, I don't go right for it anymore because that's not always what the the, the individual needs. Um, so it's it's a nuanced kind of thing. So if it does happen, we ride it. So if we imagine a sine wave, there's a peak to that sine wave, and there's a trough to the sine wave, right? And we're beginning at a relatively neutral state, move towards the peak state. But there's a threshold where if I go over that threshold, my system's now overwhelmed again. And what happens is we have a fight response kicking in, but then at a certain point, we shut down. So I may leave my body again. Mm. I may go into a daydream. I may disconnect from myself because being with myself is, again, too much. Right? So there's, a, there's that, this little teeny tiny window that if we can stay below that window, it takes a highly trained person to track another human's body and, and cue them correctly. But if I can stay below that, that threshold, then the system will automatically regulate itself. And what we want is to help the system to regulate itself. I don't want to use any interventions at all. It, like if you and I were working together, I would want your body to rediscover how to do it on its own so that it doesn't continue to happen. But if I'm still stimulating it and you're not, your body's not doing it on its own, we're not learning how to do something new. Right? We're still in the cycle. So again, we want to encourage the system because... Our bodies are so smart. They're so intelligent. We know how to heal. It's just a matter of creating re- the right conditions for that healing to take place automatically.
0: Right? Creating, like as you were saying, with the the tree in the in the pot, like creating
3: enough space, yeah, to have the full range. Yeah. Okay, so we we I want to back up a smidge here, and I want to I want to. Paint the
0: picture of how you, how you got to this work. Right. I kind of alluded to it in the beginning. Um, and before we got on, we we were chatting a little bit about, you know, some other stuff you'd done that I had no idea. And you, and you said, you know, I've lived many lifetimes and you have. Yeah. Um, and again, I think a great example of how that can color what that path looks like for you. If you're, you know, if, if we're paying attention. Yeah. yeah. And so, um, I know there's there's no real kind of easy way to answer this, but how did you end up
3: doing this work? Well, I'll give an
1: abridged version of how I how I got into this work because I think it's um, I think it's useful for painting the picture. I mean, you're right when I when I said um, I've lived so many lives, I've experienced so many different characters. If we listen to Ram Dass talk, read any of his writings, you hear him talk about, oh, I'm this character right now. I'm Ram Dass uh, or I'm Dick or I'm, you know, like really playing these characters. And, and I identify with that. When I think about it, when I listen to him, I'm like, oh, that sounds, sounds like how I think. Um, and to really put it all into perspective, <clears throat> I think it's useful to, to talk about where I came from.
3: So. I
1: was born into a, a um, I guess, an upper middle class conservative Christian family. My parents really valued family. We didn't have a television before I was 10 years old. I uh, went to a Waldorf school when I was a child. They encouraged my reading, my imagination, my curiosity about the world. And there was a lot of, really connected family experience
3: during my early life. Around 12 years old, so between 10 and 12,
1: I moved to Virginia at around 10 years old. At that time, we had lived in 10 homes. Um, So it kind of works out. It, It sounds like it works out to a new home every year, but it was more than that. Um, we would stay, or I say more than that. We would stay somewhere for a few years, and then we'd move to another house. But there were there were some jumps in between. And when we moved to Virginia, I began going through puberty. And as as puberty hit, my mother was experiencing the symptoms of complex PTSD, which was undiagnosed at the time. My dad was doing a ton of traveling, and at about this time. My life started to change. That was the the turning point for me beginning to experience suffering. And I grew up I guess I'd say I grew up in, in some ways. I had to learn about the the pain that, that existed in the world. Before this I had only heard stories. I was insulated in a pretty well-contained bubble with my family. So at twelve, my mother was overwhelmed and she just didn't know how to parent me. Yeah. What did that look like?
0: Well, she went from this to that.
1: Yeah. Well, it just looked like her not having the resources as a parent to know how to manage. I really didn't, I pushed back against the rules. They were, they were conservative and the rules were pretty, so they tightened the rules as I pushed back instead of, being in conversation with me about what might work or what might not work and and so on and so forth. Right. So there was a, you know, this is the early nineties, I guess it was. So parenting styles were different. And my father was traveling an awful lot at that time. So she didn't have the support of her partner there. And she was dealing with a lot of emotional ups and downs at the time. So it looked like her just not knowing how Um, her,
3: restricting my um,
1: time with friends, grounding me, things like that. Yeah. yeah. So things got intense at home and she decided that the only thing that she could do was to send me somewhere else. So they threatened to send me to uh, Virginia Military Academy or VMI Institute. So, And that ended up not being what they chose. They chose a group home in the, in the area near me. What is a group home exactly? Is it like a foster home? Is it like, what, what? So it's like a foster care facility. So a group home would be a place where children who don't have families, children who are not, not at a point where they're needing to be sent to juvenile detention centers, but in an in-between place where they've really had difficulties. Um, so not having a foster home to go to, they might end up in a, in this particular place. And this was a, a church run organization. How many kids would
0: you say that were there were in similar circumstances from you? Like a, let's call it w- without, you know, for lack of a better term, a normal home. Mm-hmm. And, um, mom and dad are just like, this is fucking, cause, cause most, it seems like it is that military. We're going to send them away. Mm-hmm. We're going to do this.
1: Yeah. The group home seems like wouldn't be option A. No. And I don't think it was option A for most families that had more money and, and were for lack of a better way of saying it in a normal home. Right. So no, there weren't anybody, there weren't any other kids there that were like me. And I, I was, I was um, unprepared. I, I was a soft kid. I didn't, you know, I was taught to turn the other cheek. I was, was conditioned to be welcoming and kind and loving to everyone in my life, and I was still a, I was still a kid. You know, i I was still playing with GI Joes action figures, and you know, my mother's twelve, right? I was twelve, yeah. My I mean, mother, my, was still my saying just, me to sleep.
0: One of my kids just turned sixteen yesterday. I'm yeah. like, I couldn't imagine him yeah. like
1: go, okay, but anyway. yeah, exactly, exactly, yeah. And so, I mean, they still rub my back and saying me to sleep at night. You no, know, I, I mean, I was very connected to mom and dad
3: still. So it was unbelievably
1: shocking as a child, um, terrifying. So I went from being in a in a home where there was predictability, even though there was a lot of turmoil, there was still predictability. Right there was there was stability of some kind to this. More like an institution where there was a counselor that took care of the house. There were like four houses for the boys. There were four houses for the girls. And most of the kids there were court mandated for violence, for drugs,
3: for all sorts of things. Or because
1: they, they were in the foster system and they didn't have a family. Something happened with their parents. Really when I look back on it from the perspective of right now, they were highly traumatized. They were living through chaotic experiences, parents addicted to drugs or to alcohol or abandoning. them. And so I landed in this experience and I was the perfect target because I was kind, I was open. I was, I had no idea that I needed to guard myself with these people, none whatsoever. And, um, and I was treated like a criminal. Everything that I owned was, was searched. Um, and, and I did not have any normal human privileges. So I didn't have privacy. Right? I didn't have my own space. I shared a room with another boy. Um, and this went on for a year and a half living there. Um, and I wasn't... See, the first year I was able to come home for Christmas so it, no real contact with your
3: parents? Could phone much. calls or anything like that? So they prevent um, contact with the
1: parents for a period of time when we first arrived. I guess to help with the transition. I don't know what that's about. Yep. And then my parents would come and visit on weekends. And eventually I was granted privileges so we're treated as criminals until we earn the privilege to speak on the phone. We earn the privilege to go back home and visit. So everything is about proving that we're good enough mm-hmm. to the system. But the system's broken, right? So we're proving that we're good enough to a broken system based on their rules. So, and, and the rules aren't necessarily clear. So we have to figure out what the rules are and then perform based on those things. Um, and so they have it organized as a level system. You start off at a, at a low level and you work your way up to a certain, and, and with each level, you gain more privileges. Now, I was in middle school, so I rode a different bus to school and, and I had a really hard
0: time with this experience. So you were going to like a regular school Correct. you were just living there. Was it the same school you had yeah. been going to? Yeah. Holy shit. What were your friends like? Dude, what, like, what yeah.
1: the fuck happened? Where, Dude. Yeah, it was it was bizarre. Were you able to keep that friend group or no? no yeah, no, no. I no, I wasn't. Yeah. And do you have siblings? Yeah. I have a younger brother, 2 years younger. Okay. Mm-hmm. And he stayed with your folks? He did. So he saw everything that I was going through and he took the other path. He's like, I do not want to do that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. He 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 decided that he was going to be a straight A student, he got into sports. I mean, he just he turned towards, um, what they wanted for both of us.
0: Was there a point before you got sent away where you got threatened and like, did you just, were you just calling the bluff and there was no bluff type of thing? And they're like, that's it? Or was it like, how? Well, it
3: was, um, I, you know, inside of me, it
1: was, uh, this isn't fair this is not fair, the way that you're treating me, the way that you think. Like, I was really pushing back against the way that they were choosing to parent. Yep. And my brother didn't push back and, and it didn't cross my mind to not fight back. Yeah, okay. To not assert right and wrong because I'd been conditioned by them that this is what's right, this is what's wrong, this is what's kind, this is what's not kind. And, oh, so, yeah. wow. and so I was pushing back saying, hey, 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 you're, you're, hip, you're hypocrites. This is just doesn't work. This doesn't add up. Um, and, and I wasn't completely a victim here, Cal. You know, I, I was rebellious. I really pushed back. What did that look like as an 11, 12 year old? Uh, it looked like I found some pornography in the neighborhood and I, I hid it in the house and my family was really religious and that's horrible. Yeah. It's a, it's a sin. It's an abomination for me to be looking at things like that. So I pulled the carpet back in, one, in the closet in my bedroom and I got some of my father's tools and I took up one of the pieces of a floorboard. No shit. Yeah. And I hid stuff there. You know how there's like um, the, the baseboard. I, I figured out how to pull the nails out of the baseboard so I could slide it up and slide it down and, and replace the carpet. And you'd never know that this little, like I, I created a little hiding hole.
0: Wow.
1: Um, and I would, I loved playing with knives and swords and things like that. And, and I think that concerned my parents. And so at some point they discovered this, uh, hiding spot. I left some of my father's tools there and they accused me of stealing from him. And they were trying to teach me valuable life lessons. Um, and the way that they went about doing it was the best that they, they had at the time. Mm-hmm. It just, um, I pushed back even harder.
0: That's such an, I'm so, I'm so glad that you added that piece. It's the best they knew how at that point. Yeah. It's, it's easy to lose sight and say, your
1: fucking parents did what? Like, (laughs) that's how they were conditioned. That's right. That's how they knew to love me. They didn't know any other way. And they were clear that they loved me, which made it even more confusing as the experiencer of this, this, this um, shattering of connection because we're doing this because we love you. Because we, you have to learn. And, and so that confusion continued to translate into, oh, but now I'm here. The kids are beating me up. Now I'm here and I'm here because you love me. This is confusing. When can I come home? And I just wanted to come home. wanted to belong to the family again. And so here we are, we see the foundation of this desire to belong, figuring out how to belong. And because we moved so much, I didn't have that friend group from early life all the way through.
0: Okay. I was consistently
1: moving from place to place to place, visiting other groups that were like
0: connected. Very connected. Yeah. Uh
1: Yeah. So while living it, I eventually was able to come home. But that led to more ruptures, more being sent away. So there's um. So when you came home,
0: it you you weren't able to find a way to fit into that, and it was because you were still pushing back, like this. I'm not gonna play by these rules.
1: Well, I learned how to be. um, My environment taught me how to be a better. Uh, deviant, I guess you might say. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Go here to get better. But we're gonna put you around all the people who, <laughs> know, how, exactly. who know how to fuck the system. So
2: yes. oh God. <clears throat> right. Yeah.
1: So brilliant. now I learned how to smoke cigarettes. I learned how to be rebellious. I learned I mean, the kids that I was surrounded with, they were angry. They were really angry at society. They were they didn't have parents that loved them. They were pushing hard against the system. Um, They didn't want to, quote unquote, get better. They didn't have somewhere to turn. And so what I learned from my environment was how to be, quote unquote, bad, how to push back, how to be angry with the system. And I didn't have supportive guidance anymore. So that that began to shift my frame, the world. From there's a possibility of a beautiful future to question marks. This is what these, my environment's now showing. Mm-hmm. So I, I did eventually get to come home. And once I was home, the kids on the, on the block where I lived, would just, they would just pick on me like crazy. Tons of them. And one day, I remember this, I was with a friend and I had this machete. I made this little tree for it out in the backyard and I was outside playing. And um, these kids started throwing rocks at me, a huge group. I mean, it was like four or five of them. And they were just, they wouldn't leave me alone. And they just kept throwing rocks and kept throwing rocks at me, and literal rocks. And finally, I got fed up, and I chased them
3: down. And I caught up with this one kid, and the poor kid was terrified. And I was
1: like, you have to stop doing this to me. And I had a machete with me and I took out the machete and I held it to his throat. And I said, you, you must stop throwing rocks at me. You have to get, stop picking on me. Will you stop picking on me? I had no intention of hurting him. I wanted to scare him. I wanted it to stop.
2: Mm.
1: Right. The bullying. I just wanted it to stop. Well, one of the neighbor's parents saw it happening. Oh, fuck. And they called the police. And I ran away from home and I stayed with some fr- with a friend for three days. And I denied it. said it never happened.
3: It's my, my word versus this parent's word, right? But um,
1: that didn't change the series of events that followed, because the kids wanted to press charges, my parents went to court, and the judge mandated that I go to some sort of facility. Now, while I was in this
3: group home, I was so unhappy. What did
1: the counselors and the system decide for me? Well, a kid your age shouldn't be unhappy. We'll give you pills so that you don't have to feel the unhappiness. Right? You must be depressed. Let's, let's talk about it. Here's some medication to make you stop feeling. Again, we have the way that we condition ourselves as a society, and this, this happens everywhere. This is such a huge point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the organism is saying, it's clearly telling us this environment doesn't work for me. I'm emotionally overwhelmed because I'm living through a horribly tragic and painful experience. And our answer is not to fix the environment. Our answer is to fix the response in the organism through chemical interventions. Yeah. yeah, that's it. Yep. So they medicated me. And I became zombie-like. I mean, I had all sorts of physical issues that came. They gave me Ritalin, which is speed. So I couldn't sleep. Every, every time I'd have to take it, I'd throw up at school. Couldn't concentrate. Gained weight. They Put me on antidepressants. Gained weight. And I became depressed. Naturally. Yeah. Naturally. So, coming back to the story, they send me to this boot camp like facility. I don't even think things like this exist anymore. Did you ever see the
3: movie Sleepers? Yes. Um. um
0: walk me through it. Um. Was this when they? What's his name? Kevin Bacon. The four
3: kids. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yes. So that. Oh wow, it's a blast from the past. Right. Yeah. That movie. I remember the first time I saw it. I couldn't stomach it because it was so close to some of the experiences that I lived through in some of these places. Now, I wasn't in a correctional facility where the guards were the ones that were committing abuse. I was in a facility where the kids were the ones that were committing the abuse, right? Physical, sexual abuse, all sorts of things. So at the group home, some of that stuff happened. I didn't have the resources to talk about it or even know what to do in it. I just lived it, and then I'm sent to this correctional facility. Well, this facility, like I was saying, these things I don't think they exist much anymore. If they do, boy, I feel for anyone that's at these places. But this was the '90s; they kind of they were still haphazardly experimenting with things. So it's a place in southwestern Virginia, um, and I think it's a place where um, people with uh, Down syndrome are now spending time like a camp of sorts for them. So there were two sections to this camp. One was the main camp area and one was what they called the outpost. And they had these, you begin at the outpost and it's a level system again, and you're voted up by your peers. So the peers have to agree. Well, this is a place where only court mandated cases end up. And 100% of these kids were there for behavioral issues. Severe behavioral issues. Like one of the kids was there because he, was, he had been caught bringing guns to school and he was involved in gang activity in D.C., in the inner, inner city. Oh, no, I'm sorry, not D.C., Detroit, in the inner city. There's a kid from Chicago. I mean, like, they were from all over the states. Um, and I arrived there and I'm still this happy-go-lucky-ish soft kid. Now, I'm a little bit harder, but I, d- I don't know. How to be in these environments. So, the first six months of my time there, I was in what, what they call the outpost. Now, we did not have running water. We did not have a bathroom. We did not have electricity. We had these little,
3: they called them hogans, but they are little like
1: huts that the first round of kids made. Right? So, they're these wood, it's like a little log cabin, but it's not a log cabin. Small enough, I mean, large enough for a single bunk bed, army cots. And um, we had like an army
3: uh, thing for our, our clothes. A trunk. Yeah, a
1: trunk, exactly. Yeah. And they were, they were green, like military style. We had Bob Barker soap, like they, they use in prison systems, or they did at the time. And so I arrived with my small. Thing, I had to have a sleeping bag because we didn't have sheets and blankets. I had a sleeping bag and a pillow came along and we had an outhouse. We were in the elements. These buildings weren't really buildings. They had gravel floors and it had a, a canvas door that you just, it just kind of flapped and went. So living there during my first two weeks, there, we would walk the, the mile and a half to main camp to eat our meals in a, in a dining hall. It was like an, like an outdoor camp that, that was repurposed for this. Um, during my first two weeks there, I went to the, they called it the bathhouse. It was the bathroom. So I went to the bathhouse. I went to the bathroom. I was using the bathroom and I, I looked beside me and on the wall, somebody had wiped shit on the wall with their hand. I didn't think anything of it. And I came out and I mentioned it to the counselor. In passing, just by the way, there's this something in the bathroom. I think we probably need to clean it. You know, in my mind, it's just something needs to be cleaned. Well, the counselor called a group, which meant everybody comes together, has a conversation about what's going on. That turned into a huge fiasco where no one took responsibility for it. Were you part of the conversation? I was. I just said, hey, it's in there. Yep. The counselor looked at it, saw it,
3: and it was made into this big drama. So
1: this big drama turns into everyone blaming me and they just all decided they were going to blame me for it. And I'm like, I didn't do this. So it turns into this huge thing where, where I don't even remember how long it was, a couple of hours of this conversation. The counselors asked to talk to each of us individually. I explained my, myself and everybody agreed that it was me. So I had to take the consequences for it. Consequences at this place involved uh, things for curse words would be minor things like push-ups, like a hundred push-ups or something like that, all the way to um, chopping wood with an axe and digging stumps out of the ground. So we just did manual labor most of the time: raking leaves, chopping wood, cutting trees down. Very primitive. <clears throat> I learned a lot of primitive living skills while I was there. So they gave me six stumps to dig out of the ground. And there was this one stump that was like a little island in this creek space that they'd been saving for as long as they'd been there. And no, I think it was actually eight stumps. It was the most consequences they'd ever given anyone in the history of that place um, for something. I didn't know this. They had a pig pen with with pigs and they had some uh, goats as well. And so three of the stumps were in a pig pen. And that was where I was forced to start. I refused for almost, it was almost three weeks. I refused to do anything. I didn't know what to do. They gave me an ax, a Maddox and a digging bar. And they're like, do this. No one showed me how to do it or what to do. um, And I refused. They put me on what they called isolation because I refused to do it, which meant that I had to wear an orange vest. No one could talk to me. I couldn't talk to anyone. I had to eat alone. And they put me in a tent in the pig pen. So I lived in a tent in the pig pen, and refused to, to take the stumps.
3: Weeks went by. I did nothing. All I did was
1: sit in a tent or sit outside. I did a lot of praying, because um, at the time I was still very connected to my, the religion, the Christian religion, which is what I was raised in, but nothing ever happened. I started to, to find four-leaf clovers at that time in my life that's been a thread of, of sameness throughout my whole life where I find them all over the place. So eventually they sent one of the kids down to show me how to do it. And he began doing it along with me to get me started. So I, f- I finally began. So you're like, okay, this guy's going to go. All right. Yeah. Did you, did you like the kid? Didn't know him. Okay. He was rough. They called him Redneck. That was his nickname. And he was a rough kid. None of these kids were sensitive like I was. They weren't taught to be sensitive. Yeah. They were taught to be hard to meet the world. And um, I was taught to be sensitive to my environment, to be sensitive to others, to be kind. So I eventually began using an axe. Mm-hmm. My hands bled for that first month because I didn't have gloves. So I had to swing this axe over and over again and for days. I'm. Chopping the roots to eventually dig out enough. I mean, these these stumps were huge. I mean, they were I don't know, what is that? Two feet across some of them. Um, the Damn. biggest one was um, enormous. It was taller than I was. It was around the same height as me at the time. So I don't know what that was. So it was five and a half, almost six feet tall, and it was every bit of three and a half feet across. It's huge. Now, what I learned about trees is that every tree has a taproot, which is a replica of the trunk, which goes straight down or off to the side inside of the tree. Every tree is mirrored under, underground. Its root system looks almost identical to its upward system. It's just smaller. Oh, wow, didn't know that. Mm-hmm. So if you see a tree with lots of branches, you can be guaranteed there are lots of roots. <laughs> and so I had to dig out around each of these roots and chop them and cut them and then pull them away and then bring move the dirt out of the way because I needed to pull the stump out of the ground itself. So my, my days consisted for over six weeks and it was like two or two and a half months, something like this. My days consisted of chopping tree roots and digging the ground. And sometimes I'd sit there and I would do nothing because I was just in silent rebellion, refusing to do this. Eventually I dug them out and I was able to reintegrate. It was the longest that anyone had resisted. And I was, you know, I was like, I didn't do this. And here I am doing consequences for somebody else's behavior. And um, it was wild, man. It's wild. Never found out who smeared the shit, huh? I did eventually. No shit. Yeah, I did eventually. (laughs) And so how did that feel when you found out? He was already gone. I, I mean, I felt justified when it finally came out. I had one counselor there that was the tether for kindness that helped me to get through this. So without getting too lost in our story here, the thing that makes a difference for anybody living through a difficult experience is having someone there in their life that they can connect with. As long as we have that tether, we can live through almost anything. Kind of like Peter Levine's yep, friend exactly. who was there. What Peter says is trauma is what happens in the absence of an empathetic witness, right? So I'd say that it's an oversimplification. And when there is that empathetic witness that's there, that can soften the blow of the experience. Now, a lot of that lived on inside of me, and How can it not? Um, And there were a lot of other situations that I experienced there. Eventually, my parents pulled me out. So when, they had the
0: opportunity to pull you out. They could have it time. wasn't like a sentence that you were serving. It was, yeah. you have to go, or at least for a certain period of time, yeah. I would have guessed.
1: Yeah. I don't know what the conditions were uh, that they agreed to, but I, I yeah. I'm wondering,
0: um, just to reflect on my experience in Las Vegas back in, you know, in 2017, I was at the mass shooting. Uh, and... Uh, I didn't. Um, I didn't suffer any PTSD, and I didn't. I didn't have anything lingering from that. And I had, yeah. I had gone to see a couple of specialists a few times afterwards, just to really be on the ball yeah. to make sure that there was, you know, kind of maybe nothing hidden. And one of the things that was shared with me with one of the counselors was, "Look, you were in the situation that, yeah, by all accounts is is pretty intense. So, but you were there with someone. I say with a friend. Yeah, and we were there connected." in it together yeah. and she's like that it just and i didn't see anything really gnarly i mean i saw people that had gotten shot right um but i didn't like witness it actually happening like someone's right. face being blown off or, right you know right um but is that consistent with what you've kind of understood about yeah. ptsd and and mm-hmm. why sometimes a situation
1: that would maybe warrant it. That's why some people go to war and um, they come back unaffected relatively. And some people go to war and they come back significantly affected. Um, it, it's really interesting. I mean, there's so many factors that go into your having that experience, that unique experience, right? The foundation of you going into that experience. The supportive connection during the experience. The supportive force in your life to integrate the experience, right? Whatever kind of stability existed in your life that provided you the like, the ability to get through that. So, so many of these little things that we may not normally consider all play a part in our capacity to to experience those kinds of of intense experiences and to get through them without it living on. Okay, so you get out, yeah, and now you're back home. I come home. How old are you at this point? 15. Okay. Yeah, so 12 to 15. 15 and a half, I guess I was. And, um, and my parents decided they were going to split up. And I had a f- sense that this might happen. And at this point, I just wanted to be at home with the family. I just wanted to belong. And so, this belonging piece, we we're seeing this thread of belonging piece that I spoke about at the very beginning in all of inter- interwoven in this. And you know, Ariana and I have distilled down, Tony Robbins has six basic human needs, right? That he talks about. We have three. And I believe these are fundamental for every human being, safety, dignity, and belonging. If any of these are threatened, what we'll notice is that our body will respond as though there's a threat to our life, to our survival. And so this belonging piece was pretty intimately connected to safety for me at the time. So I come home and my parents split up and, um, or they begin the process of this. And my father began the process of gender reassignment. So I learned that my dad wants to be a woman. And so this is, is this, I guess it was 1998, um, 97, 98, something like that. And so not widely accepted. I was going to say, yeah, not, not part of really the, the, the common vernacular. No. No, not at all. And I'm sure it was an incredibly hard experience for him. Actually, I know it was a hard experience for him to live through this. Um, and for me at the time, it was just add another layer of confusion to my life, right? <laughs> so I turned to drugs. I started smoking weed, and drinking alcohol on a pretty regular basis. My strategy was to feel, but to not feel, right? So I, I took myself off of all of the pharmaceuticals that they had me on and I began finding my own way and turning away from social norms at this time I skipped ninth grade I dropped out halfway through 10th grade um, and I went back to school and did 11th and dropped out of 12th grade right? and I got up my GED oh shit yeah I skipped the was it the second grade too so like uh, fragmented School, although I've I've learned plenty on my own. Um, that's right. That's yeah. another important thing for people to understand. Yeah. yeah, school does not equal intelligence by any means. So there was a little period of limbo where I went and I lived with some friends while my parents moved out to Indiana. And there's this this transit transitional phase, and my, my mother left my father, and they began the process of separation. And and then she sent me to live with my dad, and I and my dad and I cultivated this depth of connection during this period of my life from 16 to my early 20s because he was living through this you know, this transformation, I guess you'd call it, this movement of identity. And I was processing this, these traumatic experiences that I'd lived through from my teenage years. And I turned towards drug and alcohol. And rather than f- like kicking me out or forcing me to stop, he let it play out. And he remained there. And that meant that I remained there with him. And in this way, we had this symbiotic experience of going through our difficulties together. He with his strategies, me with mine. And that cultivated a closeness. He allowed me the space I needed to be angry about everything that I lived through. To push back against society. at had a Mohawk. It was huge, man. Was, no yeah. shit. Yeah. I, I went, <laughs> I, I was like, I'm going to be a musician. I thought I was going to go to Full Sail um, and study music. Didn't end up doing that. Ended up studying a lot of stuff on my own. Um, I was more interested in getting high, though. And this is where I, I think of Ram Dass' quotes. You know, I became obsessed with getting high. I wanted to transcend out of this experience. Into something else, and so my strategy was to use a substance to stimulate that state. Like I'm going to reach enlightenment. I'm going to. I'm going to, you know, learn how to vibrate out of this this dimension into the next, consciously evolving these kinds of things. Yeah, and I was just getting high, you know. And I with
3: with with with
0: some breadcrumbs of like these other. Frequencies,
1: yep. realms. Well, and so the whole point of this, this long story is to get to where I am today, right? So this is when the change began to really um, be nurtured by me. Unbeknownst to me, really, at the time. But I began planting seeds. And those seeds began with an exploration of other concepts or myths or or cultural norms outside of what I'd been raised within, which was this Christian framework. So I started learning about my ancestors, about the myths that drove them Druidic or Celtic magic. I wasn't satisfied with surface level understanding though. So I would read a book and then I'd find who inspired that author and I'd read their work and I'd find who inspired them and I'd read their work. And I just kept following the breadcrumbs. And that led me to, well, okay, this has an origin point. Oh, what influenced this? This influenced that. And so then I began like a spider web, spreading out my interest across time, myth, religion. I studied most of the Abrahamic religions. Islam is one that I didn't study deeply, but um, the descendants of Abraham, so to speak. And that led to more inner exploration and mind you while I was doing this during the last the latter part of high school I began experimenting with LSD we had a a friend who was making it and so I was experimenting almost every other day for two years wow while living in my life Um, I figured out that the half life of LSD if I did it daily it would diminish in in potency and I'd have to take more but if I gave myself a day in between I could return to previous potency (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so God right so I began really really exploring now in the beginning it was a means of escape a means of feeling something different feeling something good but that very quickly I don't know if you've experimented with LSD that, I have. Yeah, that very quickly turned into I can't get away from myself that's right I'm with my thoughts I'm with myself only now I'm exponentially with my thoughts and myself oh yeah the layers are gone oh yeah So it's fun, we're exploring. And then it was, oh shit, here I am with myself over and over and over again. Not in a bad way, in a, I'm beginning to explore the layers of feeling, the layers of memories, the layers of me in, in sometimes ways that were me strategically wiggling away from it, um, So that while learning about culture, I was deeply immersed in psychedelics. And I talked about this with uh, Josh on this podcast. You know, some of the people that I identify with in the realm of my exploration of psychedelics are people like Ram Dass or Hunter Thompson, people like Leary. You know, I went to the depths. Just a little bit wasn't enough for me. Just a little bit of understanding culture wasn't enough for me. I wanted to know where did it begin. And I wanted to know how far I could go myself with these things. And so some of that eventually turned into eating 100 hits of acid, driving across the United States. Now, I don't recommend anyone ever do anything like this. It's crazy, right? So the exploration was deep, but that led me closer to a place inside myself where the whisper turned into a roar where I wanted something. There was something I knew was possible for me. I read about these teachers. I read these stories about these these human beings that went on these long journeys of learning and discovering themselves. And I was like, that's what I want for me. I, I want that for my life. Where's the teacher that I can go study with for 30 years or something like that? The world isn't the same as it was in the 1800s. 1600s, when people would go on these long journeys, they'd walk across Asia, right? They'd study with masters. It's just not quite the same. So even back then, early 2000s, it wasn't the same. And I didn't know where to start, but I began in books and in my imagination of learning and taking in these these concepts, um, which throughout my 20s led towards personal development. I discovered Carl Jung's work at 18. I started experimenting with um, astral projection and hypnosis pretty early. Mm. And there was a period of about a year where I was to a point where I was taking objects into my dream with me. I'd, I'd go to sleep holding on to an object. and I could I'd be, it'd be dreaming with me. So again, these are just layers of discovering myself. But they were also layers of disconnecting from myself. Because I was still really immersed in getting high. Gotcha. Right. So what I thought I wanted was this good feeling, wanted to live with it all the time, instead of feeling the reservoir that was still living inside of me. As I continued doing this, there was a point, finally, where I, I had enough with tobacco. I quit smoking cigarettes. Then I met some mentors. I'm kind of skipping a portion of my, my 20s here. We jump into my... I guess it was early 30s. It was 2012 when I met these mentors. And with them, there was a framework of a way for me to do this work in the world. So if I back up just slightly, I found my way into working in the music industry. So I was doing sound engineering and live event production and stuff like that, which led to doing theater work, which led to working in opera many years. And so while I was doing that, I was still taking in and learning about cultures, about techniques, about psychology, about the human body and things like this. But I didn't know what, what I would do with these things. It was just learning. Gotcha. Right? Like a, mm-hmm. internally driven to learn as much as I could about humanity, about people, about the way that our, our minds, our bodies work. So then I meet these teachers and they were psychologists and educators. It was, it was a husband wife, Michael and, and Linda Brady. And they work through the lens of karmic astrology. And so I began a two and a half year apprenticeship with them. And Linda had, has created a beautiful training program with all these different modules and self-exploration and things like that. And I went and I did a retreat with them. And I remember being at this retreat and thinking, oh my God, this is, this is a model for something I can do. They were charging, it was like a hundred bucks an hour, 120 an hour, something like that for telephone work. Like they would do sessions with people over the phone. And this is my first experience of that. I thought, I could do this. Teach me how. This is a way out. This is a way towards something else. Um, and, and so I was like, can I, can I work with you? Yeah, of course you, you are working with us. Now, could I live with you? I wanted to do an apprenticeship with them. Apprenticeships aren't things that we hear of much anymore. No. So somehow I created that. They've never done it before and they never did it again. It was that one unique example of it occurring. And I was persistent. This is me with my persistence of somebody says no. And I say, how? <laughs> right? yeah. didn't, didn't hear the no. Yeah. So by asking how could we do this, it turned into an experience with myself and another woman from the cohort. And her, at the time, I guess he was 15 going on 16. No, he was a 16 year old. It was her 16 year old son. And we, we spent what was supposed to be a month turned into 45 days living in this small two bedroom cabin in Northern Vermont. We were five miles, if that, from the Canadian border. It was a ski town. There was nothing there. And every single day we'd get up. I stayed in the loft. It wasn't even a bedroom for me.
2: Hmm.
1: Um, So every single day we'd get up and we'd sit down and we'd begin with the curriculum and we studied our charts. We would do hypnotic regression we learned about the symbolic meaning of, um, of plants, of animals, of colors. Of, we'd go on these walks, deeply immersed in studying dream analysis ourselves. I mean, it was the most wow. deep experience. And we experiment on each other, practicing, analyzing. And that was when I began to get in touch with what was happening inside of my body. Because up until this point, I was totally disconnected from my body. I was living in my mind. Was everything that I could do to not feel, but I I wouldn't have told you that at the time. Sure, but my phrase was I think I feel, mm. and Michael just wasn't going to let me out of that.
2: Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> I remember a moment we were sitting in the living room, and he said, uh, "What are you feeling?" And I responded probably with, "I think I feel," and this thing. Where is it in your body? And I don't know. And I was overwhelmed. I felt. All sorts of things. And when I think back on that now, I was feeling embarrassed. I was feeling scared. I was feeling angry. I was feeling defensive. All sorts of things were happening, but I didn't have language for it. And I hadn't explored myself. And he just wouldn't let me out of, out of it without identifying it. And so that, I began the inquiry of what am I feeling? Where is it in my body? And he would give me five options. Mad, sad, glad, scared, or ashamed. Simple. Which of those is happening? Where is it happening in my body? Can I feel it? And if it and if it had language, what would it say? So that was the beginning of identifying this, um, and and that changed things for me. I started to get
3: connected to my feeling self, and
1: then I began working with clients. When I came out of that, I came home, and I began. My mother at that point had become a psychotherapist, and her focus is what had become trauma, which is such a beautiful um, example of how our lived experiences take us towards things, right? They help to shape us. And her own lived experiences <clears throat> turned into healing, which turned into her becoming a specialist in this field of complex trauma. And so uh, she believed that I was really good at what I was doing. And I, I, I could just see really clearly I could hear really clearly and I could intuit really clearly what was going on with the person. And I was good at finding the right questions to ask. And so she brought me into her therapy office and I began working with her and her clients. So that began my journey of client work. Um, And I took on private clients and I did couples work with people. Um, And then I decided that I wanted more formal education in this. So I went through a coach training program. And while I was going through that, I decided to go and live in Peru. And so I lived in Peru for almost a year. And I spent time with the Shipibo people, um, tribe that studies or that works with ayahuasca and a ton of other different plants. And I did long, did a, a 14 day water fast mm. with just working with the, this tree that glows in the dark. It's kind of like Avatar. It's pretty amazing. And a whole slew of other detoxic, detoxing plants and reparative and restorative plants. And it was an amazing experience living there. It was kind of like I was living one of those stories, the Celestine prophecy or the alchemist, like really in the experience of it, things would just serendipitously occur. And I was following that. So continuing to hone my craft, practicing hypnotic induction, I learned past life regression and doing things like that at the ayahuasca experiences. And um, it was really potent. And so when I came back to the States, it was uh, 2016, and I had already begun working virtually with people at that point. I was carrying a couple clients, just enough so that I could continue to travel, but not so much that I was constantly focused on work. So I was also learning and I was also experiencing out in the world. And when I got back, um, I met Ariana and we were so similar in the ways that we thought about our work. And we began a relationship and that was this like cultivation point of technique where we dove really deep into technique. I mean, even deeper, I had already gone pretty deep into technique, but and then I began the somatic experiencing training. And what Peter's done with, with this work, I think is the most clear, clear,
3: succinct bringing together of culture, of
1: healing, but he does it through science. Mm. It's absolutely incredible. So he's found a way to use scientific language to explain what what mystics around the world have pointed to with allegory and with myth, right? But we can now understand it in the body and there's a framework for working with the body. And going through that, Ariana and I went through it together and what we would say to each other, this is the science of shamanism. No shit. That's what it is. And And it's so clear. And so after going through that, that brought all the pieces of my years of study together into focus. I was like, oh, it all makes sense. I read Gurdjieff's work right now and I'm like, yeah, it all makes sense. I read Vajrayana teachings and I'm like, yeah, it all makes sense. Everything makes sense now that I learned about, but it didn't make sense when I was learning about it because I didn't have the understanding of us, of the human organism to put it into perspective. The function of the nervous system is the movement of energy in our body. When we talk about energy centers, there are are a constellation of nerve endings, groupings of them in our body. We might call that our chakra system. We just have different names from different time periods refer to the same phenomenon that occurs in the body. We have the word attachment, right? We talk about the lingering, the holding on to the past. The fear of the future or the, the, the inability to live in this present moment, right? That is discussed in so many different cultures. We have lots of different techniques and strategies to shake that off. If we look at um, more of like the voodoo, the Haitian Creole um, cultures, the hoodoo cultures, there's a lot of shaking and a lot of dancing, right? Again, we're shaking and, and going into trances. We're, lots of different strategies. for stimulating this presence right? even in um the mystic christian tradi- uh, tradition like teachings rather there's still a, a let's arrive in this present moment let's connect to right now let's quiet the mind right? it seems like it seems to me uh, from reading all of these things that it's all pointing to the same thing anthony de mello quotes this um I don't remember who it is that he's quoting, but he says, the mystic points to the moon and all the idiot sees is the finger. Now, that sounds judgmental. Idiot isn't meant to be a judgmental or a negative word. It's meant to be an undereducated, unaware person. Religion, myth, they point at something. It's a state of being. It's a state of awareness. God, whatever we want to call it. We have different words, but the word is the finger. It's not the thing. It's not the experience. The moon is the thing that we're looking for. We want to get there. And as I guess all of this lived experience kind of coalesces in who I've become now, the, I'm finding my way towards where the finger's pointing as opposed to getting hung up on the words or the pathway there. Because there's so many different strategies to getting there but it's the getting there that we're going for. It's not what, what, what happens along the way. No.
0: Mm-hmm. Do you have any, anything in particular with Peter Levine's work that you would point someone to who's like curious about
1: bringing in the science so it maybe lands a little differently? Yeah, his book in an unspoken voice lays out his model. It just fully lays it out and it's digestible. It's, it's, it's easy to understand. And I, I have a feeling that there's a book coming from him that really goes more into the esoteric, the mystic um, work, because he, he really is connected to spirituality and mysticism. It's just that his life so far has been about proving to the world the thing using science. Uh, to kind of get their attention, the like, gap. look,
0: this is, this is what
1: we're talking about here. Yeah. Here's language you understand. That's right, bridging the gap. Neutral language. Mm-hmm. If I use spiritual language, someone somewhere won't hear me. But when I can speak using clear scientific language, what I find is that more people listen, they're, they're more inclined to wake up. And yeah, we're still just inviting that, hey, let's begin the journey. Let's just take that first step. Because once we begin to cultivate awareness, it's, it's like a snowball effect. When I begin to feel my aliveness, I want more. I want to be here inside myself. If we really want to live an eternal life, we will learn how through practice to be in this present moment. Because the only thing that's infinite is this moment. Everything else dies. I die. But this moment lives on. And so what the mystics are pointing to is becoming so connected. Ram Das talks about this too, know, becoming so present with this moment. And we have lots of different ways of doing that. Meditation is one, right? We practice noticing, but there comes a point where noticing gets in the way of being. Mm. Simply being is allowing what wants to happen to happen. It's like life moves through me. Um, like, here today, I don't know why I'm talking about the things I'm talking about. They're just coming through me. They're just happening and I'm allowing it. I'm getting out of the way, right? Me gets out of the way. I just does. Mm. Right? What other practices do you like to use to drop into this moment? Mm. Well, there's so many that have been effective for me throughout my life. Um, meditation is one. I love to float. So doing that a couple times a week has been really helpful for me. That's a really good way. Music, playing music. I've gotten to a point with music where there's less frustration about um, getting it out of me. So I can get lost in the moment. Singing, dancing,
3: exercise, movement, walking, breath, breathing, um, sitting. Can, can we sit?
1: and stare at a tree or at the things outside without naming them? Can we take in the colors and the textures without cataloging them with our mind? Most of the time, no. Right. right? Uh, again, with Anthony DeMello, he, he has this beautiful reference that he makes. He says, a child sees a fluffy flying creature and is overcome with wonder
3: there it is. The moment the adult says, Sparrow, Sparrow, that child's ruined. The child will
1: never see that fluffy creature again. Because every other fluffy creature, child will say, oh, Sparrow, Sparrow. Now, it's not that cataloging our environment is wrong. It's that when we do that, something happens to us with our sense of wonder of the world. And so there's a process of unlearning, right? Which brings us to the beautiful name that you have for the show, which is I've been indoctrinated into learning how to be a human, to catalog my environment, to think, to name things, which gives me the ability to be connected to The context of humanity across time, so important, so, so, so important. And then there comes a point where I really, if I want to live the full experience of my aliveness, right? I have to unlearn all of those
3: layers and let it go because I want to come into contact with reality without concept getting in the way
1: without layers of learning in my way. With music, I learn technique so that I can abandon the technique so that I can unlearn it and it can emerge from within me as this primordial something. It's just this emergent property of expression, of aliveness, of life, of energy. right, And... Not everybody may want to begin that journey of unlearning, of unwinding the layers that we've placed on ourselves. And for those that do, beginning to do that is a journey towards freedom. Because now I'm experiencing my aliveness, the fullness of, of living from moment to moment. Can I connect with this present moment? Now I'm here. I'm really, really, really here. Most of us aren't here. Most of us are in the past where we're in the future or somewhere else. We're distracting ourselves. We're medicating ourselves. We're neutralizing our experience of aliveness. And a lot of that's really intelligent because of our experience of aliveness is so overwhelming. There's so much living on inside of us. This movement towards that freedom is really just a removing the barriers, the obstructions. Right? Yeah. And that's what, I, that's what I love about
0: this work in particular is it, it, it makes like, again, back to the analogy of the, 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 the little tree on my desk here or my table is it's like clearing out the noise. It's like creating space for yeah. you to feel the lived experience. And, you know, I'm thinking, what could you share today with people listening? Like how do they go about doing the things in their life so they may live in this moment. Mm-hmm. So they can actually um, experience what you're talking about with this moment being infinite. Because mm-hmm. I know for so much of my life, that was like so fucking esoteric. I didn't even know what that meant. Yeah. And then as I've gotten bits and pieces of, of experience with it, like, oh, that's
1: what it is. Wow. Wow. Well, there's something we could do even right now. Um, So for those of you listening, it doesn't matter whether you're driving or whether you're sitting at home or whether you're in a cafe, it really doesn't matter. For you and I right now, we can begin. Where I begin is outside of myself. What do I notice right now? And so if you and I let ourselves look around the room and disconnect from staring at each other for a moment, what stands out? For me, I notice painting of your desk, the geometric shapes, the painting of you. I notice my stomach. <laughs> notice the green painting above your window with the faces. And the colors and the shapes really
3: jump out at me. I notice the tree.
1: Wherever you are, whatever it is that you're noticing, Letting yourself name it to yourself. Take it in.
3: Just let yourself be curious about it. Bring your awareness to where your body is. What is it making contact with? Can you feel the weight of
1: your body? Can you notice if you're sitting the weight of your body, the way gravity pulls your body towards what you're sitting on?
3: Can you notice your sit bones? Can you notice the temperature of your body? And then can you bring your awareness inside your body? Are there any sensations that you can notice? any temperatures, any textures. For me, I notice warmth in the back of my thighs. I notice my stomach moving. I notice the cool in my fingertips. I can feel my heart beating in my chest. That's where we begin. Now, while I'm noticing this, can I also notice
1: myself noticing this? Can I become aware of of myself watching myself while I'm experiencing How How do I notice myself noticing myself? So we can play with contrast. Can I notice... For me, I notice that my fingertips are a little cool. Now, if you notice, Cal, I'm not making meaning about anything. No layer of meaning at all. It's purely just bringing awareness to these different things. Not saying my hands are cold because. Saying I just noticed the temperature there. So can I notice the temperature in my fingertips being a little bit cool, just a little bit. And to also notice the warmth in my thighs. Can I hold those in my awareness at the same time? So what we're beginning to do is play with awareness in a way that creates differentiation, but also holds both. So now I'm practicing being with paradox.
3: But everything be I don't know, maybe not everything,
1: it's useful for us to begin with ourselves. And from there we can extrapolate outward. In the training that Ariana and I run, we begin here. We begin. We train practitioners to be trauma informed, and it's so much more than being trauma informed. It's it's learning the language of having a body. It's learning somatics
3: as as a as like a, a category
1: of work. We think of soma meaning the body, but it's so much more than that. Greeks had this beautiful way, very poetic way of using words to describe many things. Somatics, it's it's the fullness of my being. So it's my thoughts. It's my emotions. It's my sensations or my impulses in my body. It's that which I imagine or remember. It's my sense of purpose or direction. It's my spirit.
3: It's all of me. So coming into contact with that bit by bit by bit
1: is the beginning of being able to connect with other. So if I can't be connected to me, how can I possibly connect with you? I might think I am. That's right. But it's only a thought. I'm not really here with you because I'm not here with me. So again, this process of arriving in the present moment is a process of removing the barriers to this present moment. Um, DeMello quotes a, I'm quoting Anthony DeMello a lot. Maybe we can, in the show notes, put a link to the the lecture on Spotify. Um, But he quotes a Sufi, I think it's a Sufi saying, when the eye is unobstructed, the result is sight. When the ears are unobstructed, the result is hearing. When the nose is unobstructed, the result is smell. And when the mouth is unobstructed, the result is taste. When the mind is unobstructed, the result is wisdom. He adds, when the heart is unobstructed, the result is love.
3: Now, we don't need to add anything else to life. We're conditioned to do so.
1: But really, experiencing aliveness is about removing the obstructions to this present moment. And sometimes those obstructions are emotional. Sometimes they're pain. Sometimes they're psychological. It might be the thoughts we think. Those things are living on inside of us right now. And so when we begin to move towards noticing ourselves in this present moment, we might find that what we notice feels like a lot. And we might need to turn away from it and so remembering that it's not a quick thing that happens this is a process of unfolding like a like a plant or a flower like the lotus mm. is such a beautiful example right it's a, it's petal by petal opening to our aliveness and no force is necessary that plant knows how to open when it's ready to open it knows when it's ready there's no thought it just happens it moves when it's ready to move and so As we come into contact with ourselves, knowing that bit by bit by bit, we'll know when to turn away and turn back towards it and turn away and turn back towards it. And no force is necessary. A gentle invitation. Hey, if you'd like, it's okay to open. Maybe that's enough for now. Let's stop there. If you'd like, we can open some more. Okay. If that feels like too much, let's stop right there. Maybe back up a little bit. So this is progressive across time. It's not fast.
3: And in my opinion,
1: 99% of techniques in our world rush the process, miss the mark, and prevent healing from happening. Healing being progressive change in a positive direction to support the organism, to be free, to really experience its aliveness. And so what's required... Um, Adrian Grenier. Did you have him on here recently? Yeah. Yeah. He talks about, was it moving at the speed of earth, right? Yeah. And, and that he and I were talking and, and that inspired something in me, a, a way to use language to describe what I do because it's really moving at the pace of nature. Um, and nature doesn't move fast. We don't become who we are quickly. How old are you? 50. Yeah. So 50, you've had 50 years of conditioning. Conditioning is not bad. It's useful for us for our survival. I've had 39 years of conditioning. Well, if I want to change, that means there's a process of unlearning the conditioning. And also a process of doing something new. Right? So we disorganize the current structure, shake it up, and then we have to begin creating something new. We got to make space for that. And that happens progressively across time, the same way. It happened for us to get here. So again, back to these little teeny tiny steps. I'm coming into contact with me. Ooh, I don't like me. Okay, I turn away from me. It's important for me to know that I can turn away from it when it's too much and come back to it when I'm ready. Force does not work for that. All it does is teach us to distrust ourselves more. I need to conquer myself. Mm -hmm. I need to win over myself. Therefore, my impulses are wrong and bad, right? My mind knows better. So I'm going to conquer the machine that is my body. David Goggins is a beautiful example of this. When you're a warrior, you need the kind of capacity for conquering all of your impulses that Goggins has. Mm -hmm. He's the perfect example of a Spartan, really, essentially. I can ignore all of my, impul- my primal impulses and I can crush out there. That, I want someone like that fighting for me. Mm-hmm. And I don't need to be that. That's right. I think he's a, that's a
0: great example. I think a lot of people miss that with him. Mm-hmm. They think they need to be him.
1: No, like, yeah. Bro, no. you don't. Yeah, that's useful in combat. Yes. And I don't live in combat situations. Right. <laughs> right. And most of us don't live in those kinds of situations. So this progression towards also requires the, the softer, gentler, maybe not soft and gentle, but the patience of moving at that slower speed. And it requires us as a species to really reevaluate how we place, um, how we, you know, the assumptions that we're operating from about what helps us to change. Um, there's a, there's a guy who I studied, I studied really deeply and he's, passed away, I guess it was 2016, I think it was, uh, Stanley Kellerman's work. It's obscure and it's really intellectual, but he does a really good job of explaining how the movement patterns and the shape of our body informs how we develop ourselves. Again, I think he just built on Gurdjieff's work, which a lot of people have, but this, it takes time again,
3: right? For us to unlearn all of what,
1: what we have learned um, to create, to stimulate that change. You know David Gonzalez, right? Yes. So David and I have created a uh, foundation. It's in the beginning stages of its creation right now. But our mission is to solve humanity's biggest problem. The biggest problem that humanity has ever faced across time. And what we posit is that the biggest problem humanity is facing right now and has ever faced is trauma. The lingering response, right? The living memory, the reflexes that get in the way of us living connected in our world. It leads to every other problem that we experience as a species, everyone. There's not a problem out there in the world that can't be solved if we address trauma. So when we ask the question, how do we do that? Where do we begin? Another question emerges which is where, where, like what starts it, what causes it? And the answer that, the only answer I can see, and I'm open to anybody sending me an email and talking to me about this, open dialogue about this. The only answer I see is our process of domestication. So how do we stop trauma before it ever happens? We can go treat the symptoms. There, there are, are hundreds of thousands of people, if not more, millions of people probably treating the symptoms of trauma. Most of of the things that we're doing to help humanity are treating the symptoms. But again, that's not preventing it. If we were to think preventatively, we've got to get ahead of it. The only place we get ahead of it is by coming together in the question, a common question. How do we deal with this? What do we do? Because the process of domestication is embedded in every culture on our planet. It's embedded in every religion. It's embedded in our stories. It's embedded in everything. Every last detail of who we are as a species is full of this. So, how do we stop the thing from happening? We have to recreate who we are. We've got to create something new for future generations. Because if we don't, something's gonna happen. We will implode, we will destroy ourselves, or we'll continue doing what we're doing, right? So the mission of we called it the truth foundation. The mission of this foundation is is to create a place where that research can begin to start happening, where we can begin to to look at humanity and say, how do we handle this? What do we do as a species? Which I think is you know, my greatest life's work being in that question. How do we stop this from ever happening? Because I treat the symptoms of it all the time. Yeah. But we're not stopping it. I'm putting a band-aid on a open wound you know, Mm. and then tearing it open again and again, you know, it's, it's not solving the problem. Just taking Tylenol for a headache instead of drinking more water. Well, that seems like a bold undertaking. Holy shit. (laughs) Well, I'm not going to be the one that's doing all of it, but we, we will bring the people together to make it happen. I had a question. A lot of, um,
3: a lot of us, Spend time on our physical getting stronger. You know, we met,
0: yeah, you know, working out together. And um, I know that in my experience, my own personal experience, when I left a very kind of rigid, like muscle building, uh, chasing goals uh, mindset, and I went from, you know, 205 pounds to 180. Mm. because I just needed time off and I was like healing my body physically. I started to like notice that, uh, I was letting go of that, that warrior kind of archetyped, which I was kind of wearing most times. And I was starting to soften emotionally. I was becoming more open-minded and, you know, I, I wonder what you would say to people that are in that go get them, working out building muscle, strength, which is important, mm-hmm. you know, but I feel like there's that missing component of getting to those deeper layers of where the softening can come
1: in. so what does that look like for people? All expressions of life are beautiful, and if we only live our lives the way that we're living them right now, it's completely okay so If we're curious about what else is possible, we can begin to, right where we are in life, simply bring more awareness to our experience. So we don't have to stop. So let's use this example, the warrior archetype. We don't have to stop being a warrior. Let's bring awareness to the process of creating that warrior within us. Can I notice myself in that? When I do, do I like what I notice?
3: What am I noticing? What's it like inside? Um, and that would be where I would begin with that awareness. How do I know when enough is enough? That's a question for us to ask. Mm. How do I know when I'm thirsty?
1: Am I aware or is my objective to go beyond enough because I have a belief structure that supports that I need to conquer myself? It's not my body I'm trying to conquer.
3: There's something else. What's that about?
1: Can I bring awareness to it without changing it? And so when I begin working with anybody, it's not about changing the pattern of behavior. I want to understand behavior. I, I want to, it's not me that wants, but I want the person to understand their behavior. Can I bring awareness and understanding to the behavior that I'm doing? When I do, I may discover that this is not actually a useful strategy for getting what I want. I might discover that it is. I might discover that I thoroughly enjoy this. It's my preference in life. But we won't know until we, we get into that exploration. What's the, what's the being a warrior about? Is it because I'm proving to myself that I'm enough? Is it because people will like me? Is it because I will like me? Why would I like me more if I'm that way? Can I discover that answer? What's driving me to, to that belief? What's driving me culturally to that? Can I be an explorer of those things? And so again, beginning with that exploration, just inviting the question.
3: What's this about?
1: I'm, I love moving my body. I love that feeling of being powerful. And if I don't have it all the time, I have other things that I love. Now, some of us move towards that warrior energy because if we don't, we feel uncomfortable inside of ourselves. We feel agitated. We lash out at the world. And it's a way that we manage that, um, that energy inside of us. Maybe we were beaten up as children. Maybe we, were, we had a father that was incredibly intense and angry with us. So what do we do with that energy that we couldn't do something with as a child might be to push heavy shit around because that means that I'm not getting angry and lashing out at my partner. Because that means that I can contain this like force That's inside of me that needs somewhere to go. But again, all we're doing is managing the symptom. We're not resolving it so it stops. If I didn't have that burning fire inside of me, would I push heavy shit around as much? Maybe not. But I've built a whole structure around myself now. It's my identity. So now really questioning my identity might
3: not be something I want to do. And that's okay. Yeah. I don't have to. Yeah. Yet. Yet. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So tell me this then,
0: what does it look like to work with you? I mean, you said you and Ariana are doing a, um, a coaching
1: program. So it's more of a training program. Um, So we have a three times a year, we run the trauma and somatics training program and it's for helping professionals. So educators, doctors, therapists, mindfulness practitioners, doulas, uh, we've had the works come through and, We teach the basics of polyvagal theory, nervous system physiology, attachment theory, and things like that. We teach a a series of somatic practices, which are practices to help us to connect with our bodies. But then we also teach practical application of how to use those skills with the people that we work with. So if you're working with other human beings, we teach you how to do that in a way that's sensitive to the trauma that exists inside of them without working directly on that trauma. So we make a distinction. There's trauma aware. So there are people in the world that don't know that trauma is a thing. There's people that know the trauma exists, but they don't really know what it looks like. Then there's trauma informed, which is, oh, I recognize that's probably a trauma trigger. I know how to sidestep it or to work with the individual without focusing on it, right? So that I'm not stimulating something I can't do something to support. And then we have trauma trained, which is me. Like I'm, I'm trained to work on trauma, and sometimes I do. And so this distinction turns into how do i support the individual that i'm already working with in a way that's more generative for, for them for their unique signature of them so we do that three times a year one round in january um, which is as we're the date that we're that we're recording this there's a couple weeks left uh, i think two weeks left to to get into this program i don't know if i don't know when the air date this will be but then there'll be one in may that and then there'll be one in september so we run it three times a year and then we do an advanced practitioner training that we're beginning this year And that's a deep dive into these practices and the practical application of really infusing this work into the work that our students do with their clients. And I'll tell you, it's it's a beautiful thing, Cal. You know, some of the more mystical uh, concepts. I blend a lot of this into what we're teaching, really contextualizing the science and then the more esoteric as they intersect. And all of that intersects in our body, in our experience of ourselves, in our aliveness. And most of our students what they discover is a connection to themselves that they didn't ever have. And that's the first and foremost thing. Everyone walks away more connected to themselves. And as a result, the people in their life give them the feedback, that wow, you are so different. What, ha- what happened to you? And many of them go on to study somatic experiencing afterwards. Um, so it looks like 25 hours of, of work. Um, there are... Is it self paced? Is it how? It's, it's a combination. Yeah. Okay. So there are 10 two hour training classes that are live interactive. We do via Zoom. And then there are six modules of self paced study that are split up every two weeks. A new module is released. Uh, the way that we designed it was all audio so that people can take it on the go with them. And then a PDF workbook that they can also add to their phone. The workbook isn't something you need to write in, but it's accompanying slides. So the material, it's like an arc. Each, of, each bit of the journey has been strategically designed for an embodied learning experience. So we begin with the basics of understanding who we are, how our body responds to environment, certain contextual frameworks, things like that. And then as we're learning that, the student experiences connecting to themselves. And we have strategies and we have a whole framework for how we teach to do that. Coming into contact with my body, differentiating between emotion, thought, and, and, and uh, sensations. I and mean, we have language prompts that we use to help people create distinction between those things. And that moves from noticing ourselves to how to use specific uh, interventions or strategies or techniques with clients. Students get time to practice that inside of the container. Great. And then, uh,
0: is there a prerequisite to, to signing up? I know you listed some of the different professions of the people you work with, but if someone's just curious about this work, Mm -hmm. would this be a good place to start? Or is there some sort of, um, work experience or something that you recommend beforehand?
1: Well, our preference is that, um, if you're interested in joining us, that you have some experience working with other human beings or are on a path to begin doing that soon in the future. But um, we've had, I mean, we had a uh, um, a realtor come through. It's pretty much anybody that comes through this is going to get something useful from it. The way that we've designed it is for um, coaches or therapists or helping professionals who are actively working with clients. So we, we frame this and when you're working with your client, this is what might come up. This is, this is how we might meet that. Um, so it can be helpful regardless. Got it. But the structure, the structure of it structure is, is- For is, helpers. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So there's that pop. And then there's private work that I do. And so I take on six, maybe eight private clients a year. And, I, and my preference is a 12-month long journey with them. I've, I've spent two and a half, three years with various different clients. So the long-term work is about moving slow enough that the system can adjust. And what I see is that the results end up being a permanent structural change to the thoughts, to the, like the embodied expression, the, the being of the person. So this is a full immersive experience of, of transformation, which is why I work with so few. Mm-hmm. because that means that I can really attend to the people that i'm spending time working with, and then I occasionally do a little bit of trauma focused work with um with maybe two or three people um, at, at and what periods. does that look like? What do you mean trauma focused so the high touch high involvement is more of through the coaching model where I'm spending like exclusive time immersed with an individual guiding them towards different practitioners and really designing a, a whole team around their life while I'm immersively working with them and the trauma focused work looks like sessions a couple times a month across a period of a shorter period of time sometimes where we're really focused on resolving the acute expression of the trauma in in, in the body the acute Uh, reflexes or the patterns, things like that. So somebody maybe had a concussion or an accident or has some early developmental things that are going on. And I'll work with that individual across time to help to support the resolution of those things. So it's not, I'm not building a huge team around them the way that I would with some of the higher profile people that I work with. Got it. Yeah. Got it. And where can people find you? Uh, So social media will dot reason on facebook at will reason and it's r-e-z-i-n on instagram and then awakened soma is my website and then trauma and somatics.com is the is the training website i answer all of my own emails still at A boy <laughs> yeah nice. and i res- i respond it may take me time to get back to people but i will respond on social media if they want to reach out to me
0: right anything anything else we uh that we've maybe didn't cover that's important
1: to know or well, I'll leave our listeners with a thought, which is what I generally leave people with, which is, healing happens in connection. It's fundamental to who we are as a species. Our, our organisms need that connection. It's vital to us. So healing happens in connection with other human beings. And healing happens across time. Right? So change. if we really want to create that change, it happens. When we have the feedback from something else in our environment, it doesn't happen in a vacuum, it happens in connection. That change happens across time. And so, being patient with that, again, unlearning the industrialized capitalistic concept of the world, which is add more in, we've got to let that go, take that away, and be patient with the process of changing. Because if we go slow, not necessarily slowly, if we're more methodical across time, what we'll find is that the change will happen quicker. As paradoxical as that is. That's right. Is there anything else that you want to know or have in your mind?
3: Um, that's a great question. Oh, there's,
0: I mean, there's so much around this work that, um, you know, I'm just, you know, again, I've had experience with TRE over the last probably three and a half years. And then just more recently I had the, the experience where, you know, I felt like my upper, basically upper abdomen area, mm-hmm. which like, yeah, I have ab muscles, yeah, but they were basically raised, you know, maybe three quarters of an inch to an inch. And it was like a tortoise shell. Mm. You were like, Oh no, that's, that's, it's supposed to be like, this. it's like, no, it's, it's not. Mm-hmm. You know, and so the work that I did recently with someone, um, it's all pliable now. Mm. And I've never felt, I mean, I don't remember the last time I felt that, Yeah, you know, and then I had this knee pain, my left knee for four, I've had it for four, four years. Mm. I've tried every different way to sort it out. And at some point, like I just had this understanding, there's some stored something or other there. Yeah. Yeah. And through this work that I did, I don't it's not there. It's yeah. there anymore. That's beautiful. So I'm just like, you know, curious, like you hear that, like what what are your thoughts about like yeah, you know, like the physical manifestation of this stuff. And then, you know, and again, it's like I'm not sure what caused any of it. And mm-hmm. on some level, it's to me, it doesn't feel that important. It would be cool to know, but I just feel like over time, there's going to be more space for me to feel
1: yeah, whatever it is. Yeah. I mean, you're describing it. I mean, I've, I will have things like that happen too. Um, I'll have some sort of physical something going on, and I'll ask I say I'll ask myself, but it's not really me asking myself. I'll take some time to be with myself. What is it that I'm that wants to be felt? Can I be an explorer? And then, oftentimes, I'll find a human in my world, whether it be a practitioner or somebody close to me, and I'll begin having a conversation or exploring whatever whatever it is inside of myself. And I find that in connection, I can access that. And oftentimes, it'll show up as a body tremor or an emotion. And I think that the key here is to stay present with it without getting lost in it. Right. The objective is not for me to cry, although if crying happens, I want to allow it to happen without forcing it and without resisting it. And Mm -hmm. it'll stop on its own. And it's the same with muscle contractions, right? Like um, when Ariana and I separated earlier this year, we were together for five years. And when we decided to separate, I, the day after us deciding this together, I had this phantom back injury. Yeah, so my Mm -hmm. low back froze and something happened with my pelvis. and. I had there's a brilliant Feldenkrais practitioner here. Um, his name is Pat Siebert. And I had him come to the house because I'd been doing some work with him all spring. And he did a little bit of work with me. And my body, I had muscle convulsions and contractions with no psycholo- no, no psychological, no story, no, no meaning associated with any of it, where I was just tremoring and my body wouldn't stop shaking. And I was in excruciating pain. And I'm just, objectively watching this with amusement. Like, here we are, here's the thing happening. And reminding myself not to resist it and not to force it to happen. Hmm. And uh, Ariana had been gone during my session work with him. It was about an hour and a half with him and my body just, I couldn't get up off the floor. I literally couldn't stand, I couldn't roll over. And she came over to me and um, I had her slide her hand underneath my body and hold my kidney. And kidneys, it's a whole other conversation, but um, our adrenals live on top of the kidney. And when we're stressed, the kidney pulls up underneath our rib cage to keep us safe from puncturing of uh, teeth. Well, that puts pressure on the adrenal system, which puts pressure on the HPA access, right? Which causes all sorts of different things to happen in our body. So I knew that my body was stressed. She came over and she, she held me. And in that holding, something happened in me where I was able to let go enough. I had the contact, the safety with another human. And I finally was moved by this emotion and for 20 minutes or so, just convulsing and sobbing. And then I could get up and the constriction pattern began to go away. Uh Right. So this is real. Most of us are disconnected from it. And most of us don't have the time or the space or the ability to turn towards it. We're not trained to turn towards it. Right. So The turning towards it was something I've learned to do over time. And thankfully, I've created a life where I run my own life. So I could turn towards it. I could have the space to investigate it. And I knew to ask for the support that I needed. And so from that place, um, being connected to her while she and I were disconnecting romantically was the most beautiful experience ever. But Had I turned away from that, I might have constricted it, and I might have built more pain inside of myself and resistance that would have prevented me from being able to remain connected. Through so, all that. so what does someone do
0: Will, who feels that back? They know, or this chronic back pain, right? Mm-hmm. And they're carrying the load for the family there, whatever, right. right. There's all these different, um, things that we understand about what this pain is. It's not something acute that happened. Right. Right. Um, what does someone do who doesn't have your experience and your ability to turn towards it? And, and my ability to have time and resources to turn towards these things, right. what do you do if, if you're, you know, not in this, you know, don't have this, the ability to do that,
1: where do you point them? Yeah. Um, I think that so many of us don't have, we don't think we have the ability to do it and, Our lives are not created in such a way with people that support us turning towards these things. Mm. So if you're listening and your life is that way,
3: maybe before falling asleep, if you can
1: let yourself notice yourself just a little bit each night and in the morning, maybe go read Hal's book, the, the Miracle Morning, begin to think about creating a little pocket of space for yourself. To be with yourself. It starts small. We, it,
3: it may not feel easy in the beginning
1: because the lifestyle that you've created has, doesn't support it to happen. It, it, it may be confronting because the relationships that you've cultivated don't support noticing these things. And those things may begin to fall away. Maybe if you're courageous enough to let that happen. But it takes time to even get to the point where those things fall away. We begin by noticing it. Fuck, I'm hurting. Yes, I'm hurting. Not why am I hurting. I'm hurting. Why takes me into my mind, takes me away. It's, a, it's the strategy that we've all learned. Why? I need to figure it out so I can solve it. It's a problem that needs to be solved. Uh, that's right. Feeling is not a problem that needs to be solved. Feeling simply is a product of us being humans. So we want to remove that stigma around feeling. Like oh I'm feeling. Yes, you're feeling, you're alive. God, I want to feel. I want to be moved to tears by a by a story or by an experience. I want to be moved to joy, the rapturous joy that I feel when you know with my aliveness. I want to be moved to sadness, to anger. I want to feel these things without them Consuming me and taking me over and without me turning away from them. But that takes practice. So if I'm in the practice of ignoring myself, if I'm going to a job that I hate, if I'm carrying the load, the emotional load of a family where I'm disconnected from them, well, yeah, it's intelligent for me to turn away from those feelings. It's intelligent for me to compartmentalize that. Because if I don't compartmentalize it, I would have to do something about my life. I would have to do something new. I would have to change. My circumstances. And uh, oh, that's terrifying. Maybe I don't want to change my circumstances. Maybe that's too hard. So when we begin to wake up, it's just like, I mean, I love that the Matrix is so popular, but we really are faced with that decision. If I wake up, everything is going to change. That means that when I'm faced with the reality of what is my life, maybe I don't like that reality. Maybe I have to do something about it. Maybe I don't want to do something about it. And so maybe I deal with the pain by taking a a pill. Maybe I deal with the pain by by ignoring it, by getting a surgery, by cutting my body open. Maybe I deal with the pain by drinking, by turning away from my my loved ones. That is an intelligent response to something that's overwhelming. And most of us have created lives that we don't love circumstances that we would never choose if we were to write a story for ourselves. Mm. So again, coming into contact with reality might mean coming into contact with, fuck, I can't do this.
3: That makes sense. So again, bit by bit, but getting connected to that is where does it lead?
1: Am I, do I want to be here? Maybe my body's telling me it. I don't. Maybe my body's telling me all of those arguments I'm having with my partner. I don't feel resolved. I don't feel safe. Maybe every time I get up and go to work and I have a headache, my body's giving me a signal. It's like the check engine lights on. Okay, hey, add oil. Hey, hey, replace that tire. Now I don't want to. I'm just ignoring it. But eventually, the signal will go from a whisper to a roar and I can't ignore it anymore. But at that point, so much has compounded that I'm not going to know what's causing it anymore. And we see this with people going on these, um, life-changing spiritual journeys at, around your age, around my age. Yeah. Like, ah, crap. Look at what I've created For my, I've got to destroy it all and start over again. Yeah. <laughs> right. I think that's a perfect
0: place to end. Beautiful. Beautiful. Thanks, brother. Thanks for being on today. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to The Great Unlearn. For more information, check out the show notes or head over to TheGreatUnlearn.com for additional episodes and information regarding events, retreats, and the TGU store. If you like what you heard today, please click subscribe and share this with friends who might enjoy our platform. Don't forget to leave that five star rating and review as it really helps us spread the love and unlearning. You can find me on Instagram at cal.callahan and on YouTube under The Great Unlearn. Thanks for listening to The Great Unlearn, and we'll talk soon. No, no different, only different in your mind. You must unlearn what you have
3: learned.